1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon, and I have to ask,
0: Wade, I don't know, I just, I guess I have a feeling, you're not planning on spectacularly betraying me in some way during this week's recording, are you? (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, LOL, Kevin. I I would never do that, buddy. Wait, wait, wait. What's that? What's that you're trying to hide behind your back? Is that a knife?
1: Q psycho theme music. (laughs) Listeners, today on the episode, we're reviewing the new film from Shaka King, Judas and the Black Messiah. It tells the story of William O'Neill's betrayal of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party chairman, Fred Hampton.
0: I'm looking forward to our discussion of that film for sure. Just don't pay me any mind. I'm just going to be conducting the entire recording session
1: with my back firmly pressed against this wall. All that's coming up, listeners, on this episode, episode 281 of Seeing and Believing. Repeat after me. Listeners, we are here with episode 281 of Seeing and Believing. And Kevin, I want to express my gratitude to you and our listeners for some patience last week because Texas went through a crazy winter storm and it just kind of messed up all of our recording plans. We're back this week Everything's everything's cool. Uh, we got the repairs and things that we needed to get done done. I had a pipe burst at the office, and that's fixed. I have something here at the house that doesn't need to be fixed right away. So everything's everything is cool, but uh, I'm glad to be back talking to you this week.
0: Yeah, it seems like it was kind of touch and go there for a little while, so of course we're really glad that you and the family are safe and that uh, we're back in the saddle for, for this
1: week. I do have a funny story, so, I have an iPad, and our electricity was off for like a day and a half. I think over a day and a half. And I had somehow downloaded Charlie Kaufman's film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, on my iPad. And so... My wife, Priscilla, she pulls up the iPad and she's looking at what's been downloaded. And I didn't actually watch the movie on the iPad, but it was somehow there. And so she starts watching the movie and she stops it after 15 minutes. And she says, I don't know if I'm going to finish the movie, Wade. Can you just tell me what happens? And I said, okay, you're going to need to sit down for this. And I, she did not believe me when I told her what happened in that film. So that's my funny story from Snow Snowpocalypse 2021.
0: I, I, gotta, I gotta say, I have a lot of respect for you for being able to describe what happens in that film without any preparation. Like, somebody just asks you point blank, <laughs> cold, hey, what goes on in this movie? And you actually did it. Like, that's pretty
1: impressive in its own way to even take a stab at that,
0: oh, let alone
1: succeed. So. I'm like, okay. And then it becomes this dance musical in the gym. <laughs> I think she just thought I was making it all up at the top of my head. Um, but, yeah, no, that was, that was uh, my funny story from this past week. But everything's good. And I'm excited to jump back into the show with this review of a film that's currently playing in theaters. But it's also premiered on HBO Max. It's Shaka King's Judas in the Black Messiah. After being arrested for impersonating a federal agent, William O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield, is offered a plea deal by FBI agent Roy Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons. Hey, that's, that kind of connects to I'm thinking of ending things. Um, he's given this plea deal to infiltrate the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. His mission is to gather intelligence on Chairman Fred Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, evidence that will be used by FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, played by Martin Sheen, to halt the movement's quest for equality. Kevin, this is a biopic, but the angle is a little bit different. It approaches the character, the individual, of Fred Hampton from an alternative route by focusing part of the story on the man who betrays him, uh, William O'Neill. As we jump into this review, I wanted to ask you about that angle. Do you think that angle works for a story like this? And does it serve to illuminate not only this movement, but the individual, Fred Hampton?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I uh, maybe shamefully didn't know anything really about Fred Hampton, his life or or his Mm -hmm. story uh, until... Around the time that the trial of the Chicago 7 was released last year. And then, of course, you know, there's that uh, that scene where Fred Hampton makes a brief appearance. And then, uh, you know, I kind of dug into that a little bit and, you know, saw a few articles about what actually happened to him. And I just couldn't believe that a story that is that just out there almost, I, I just can't believe I'd never heard it before. And so it's really great to get a film that focuses in just on that and uh, really presents it in really kind of just how awful the story it really is. Um, and I do think that the way that Shaka King, who uh, directed but also uh, co-wrote the the screenplay, um, I think that approaching it through the lens of the person who betrayed Hampton, I think is... Uh, again, it's it's a great way to avoid some of the pitfalls of kind of a, a based on true story narrative. And it also just manages to tap into something that at least I personally think is a really interesting dynamic, which is the the mindset of of a betrayer. i I might be a little bit controversial here, but I actually think that one of the most interesting biblical figures to think about in terms of just, you know, what was driving him, what was what was it like to to know him, what was it like even to be him, is Judas Iscariot. It's just so such a singular role for one person to occupy to betray to be to be known as a betrayer first and foremost, and to betray somebody like Jesus. Now obviously in this film, you know, the, there's not really that uh strong of a link drawn between Hampton and Jesus. I mean, there's the title, of course, but he's not necessarily posited as some sort of Christ figure. But Lakeith Stanfield as Bill O'Neill in this picture is just spellbinding in the way that he plums the depths of somebody who uh, can simultaneously, like position themselves as kind of the right-hand man of a really great leader and also the person who is responsible for the unjust killing of that person. And so I think it's a, it's a wonderful angle on the story. And I think it really ends up producing what for my money is the first great film of 2021.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's high praise, uh, even though we haven't seen a, a ton of movies, uh, for, for you to say that I, I think is, uh, is, uh, yeah, it, it is high praise. I like the angle uh, of exploring this individual through the eyes of the person who would ultimately come to care for him and to love him, but then betray him. And you mentioned Judas, and there is this fascination with that character, and it dates all the way back to the second century when we get the Gospel of Judas and that gospel in a sense defends Judas and this is the story of a man who was poised to do something great he had already done a number of great things he's poised to do something uh, even greater and his life is cut short by someone who uh, who should have and, and it seemed like anyway care for him and that's a fascinating angle, and I think the performances are really just amazing in this film. I mean, these performances, I think, carry the story along. Uh, saying that, I, I, I like this film, but I, I, I always felt this, I don't know, watching it, this almost wall, if you will, I never really got got to plumb those characters and their stories like I wanted to. I always felt like I was at an arm's distance. I felt like I learned a lot of facts, but the movie, because of, I think, some plot choices and uh, be- because of some of the didactic elements of the film, kind of keep me at arm's length. And so I, I'm i trying to figure out and, and hopefully articulate why that is. I still, I still think it's a great movie. I just, I wanted a stronger Connection or portrayal of these real-life human beings.
0: I'd be interested to hear you talk more about that because that wasn't really. I I, I don't I don't uh, have that perspective on it at all. Like I I really thought that the the characters in this film are uh, very well drawn. They're complex, and I do think that we do we are permitted entry into their viewpoints. Uh, pretty extensively, not just uh, for Hampton and O'Neill, which, of course, you would expect them to kind of really get a lot of attention in that regard, but even some of the supporting cast. Jesse Plemons as the FBI agent who uh, ropes O'Neill into being an informant, I think, is also a fascinating character, both for how he, he is part of the establishment. He is the one who... Uh, arguably, remorselessly uh, orchestrates Hampton's uh, murder and and O'Neill's parts to play in that. And yet, there are scenes between him and his superiors where Plemons gives us a little bit of a look into a guy who it's he doesn't do this because he's a mustache-twirling villain. He does it because you know he's kind of a company man and he's just doing his job. And he feels a little bit of discomfort with what he's doing, but he also kind of, that's just what he does. And I think Plemons is able to walk that line in a really interesting fashion that takes what could have been a very two-dimensional role and, for me, really fleshes it out and brings it alongside Stanfield and Kaluuya's great performances as just yet another example of how Shaka King is able to to explore the, 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 both the outer uh, actions that these men took and the way they're uh, taking their place in history, but also the way that they felt about those actions and their place in those events.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I'm kind of working through some of the relationships, I appreciate the relationship between O'Neill's character and his FBI handler mitchell uh plements as you as you mentioned i i i think i saw more potential there than uh realized potential there is a point where o'neill his character is giving an interview and this interview kind of sandwiches the film and it it pops up here and there. It, it's, it feels almost a little haphazard to me, but it's after the fact in the 1980s, and he's being filmed for a documentary by PBS. And those, those some of those lines kind of pop in, and at one point he talks about how a, a reason why he did what he did was because he found almost like a father figure, in this FBI agent, in Mitchell. And I say haphazard with the, with, with the narration with these, these interviews because I, I, I don't think the film needs to tell me that. I think it needs to show me that. And I, do, I didn't really ever get that from watching these two characters interact. And part of it is because some of the dialogue from Clemens's character is just a little over-the-top I mentioned didactic at times It it is a little too on the nose and their relationship in a sense kind of boils down to well I've got you in a bind and so you're gonna become this spy for me and then I'm gonna give you money and O'Neill uh, does it for the money and he does it because he's connected to Mitchell but all that feels like it's kind of on the surface. I want to see. I want to see more there. I want to see what type of power he felt like he had uh, to side with this individual. I do think the film does a really great job of of showing us the other side, O'Neill, and how much he comes to care for and just enjoy being with this with the the Black Panther party and how connected he becomes to Hampton's character. So I, I think the film does a number of things well. I just I guess I just wanted a little more connection there and perhaps that's why I almost felt like there was a, a bit of a wall where I wanted to connect with some characters more but it felt like some of them were just a little bit a little flat and we see that in a lot of biopics. I mean that happens a lot where you get a lot of facts. And the human is kind of obscured by the persona, and I think that happens a bit here too.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you, you listen to to say that. I can I can understand where you're coming from, and it puts me in mind since we are you know, since uh, Judas and the Messiah's and the film style. Mm-hmm. Of course, you you think about movies that are about the. You know the actual Judas and the actual Messiah, and a common complaint that I have about Jesus movies is that Jesus always kind of he doesn't feel like a he, he feels like an icon rather than a person, uh, and you know you can sort of quibble theologically with you know what what that would actually entail to portray Jesus as a person, like he, what what's the nature of the incarnation? That's a very fraught question, but I guess just in terms of drama, Jesus always just feels kind of inert. He doesn't feel like anything other than a presence uh, around which all of the other characters kind of orbit. And that's a reason why so many Jesus movies just aren't very interesting to watch, is that the ostensibly the central character isn't really a very interesting character at all and with this film i do see where you're coming from in that fred hampton doesn't i it would have been nice i guess to get a, a more of a sense of how he sees his own his own power how he what what he thinks of his place in this movement, in in the Black Panther movement, how, where do these ideals spring from? What feeds them, um, and how does he regard um, the the different ways in which that that power can be wielded on his part? And I think I would have liked a little bit more of that because it does feel like Kaluya is. Giving a performance that it's not interior. It's a very it's a very big performance in a lot of ways, but we don't really spend a whole lot of time uh, plumbing the, the the interiority, I guess, for Fred Hampton. We spend too much time with Stanfield O'Neill, to really do that. But I do think that in some ways that works to the film's benefit because it gives us almost. A portrait of Fred Hampton as O'Neill's son, sort of as this slightly remote, very charismatic, very interesting uh, person whom he wants to be close to and wants to be friends with, but also somebody who just seems a little bit like he's untouchable. And that tension is, I think, where the drama comes into the betrayal: is how much of this is O'Neill being, you know, being roped into something against his will? How much of his betrayal springs from a place of wanting to, uh, wanting to somehow take Hampton down a few pegs? How much of it, ha, what what elements of it are personal for him and what elements of it are springing from a place of ruined affection and how much of it is from a place of envy? I, I think those are all elements that are bound up in this performance and Stanfield, his performance... Is just so magne- magnetic. There's a scene where uh, Hampton, freshly released from prison, comes to the Black Panther office. It's recently been renovated after the the cops uh, blow it up. And uh, Stanfield's O'Neill is the one who kind of spearheaded the reconstruction effort. And Hampton's just obviously really uh, touched by the fact that they put it all put in all this work to repair all of the damage and he he thanks O'Neill in a very vulnerable moment and Stanfield's face in that moment knowing what what we know as the audience that he is a traitor and that he is partly responsible for the damage that took place in the first place the the look on his face where he's he's trying to maintain eye contact with Hampton in that moment and he just the way Stanfield uses his eyes, just this flicker where you can almost see his eyes trying to look down and look away, but he wills himself to keep, you know, smiling in the face of the person whom he is uh, betraying and working to bring down. Is just, it's an incredible bit of acting, and I think really uh, just elevates the the entire film. So it's it's difficult for me to. To imagine a, a a way where we could be brought more into that moment, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, well, it, I, I think part of the issue too, maybe with me, is that the film is very propulsive. And there are, there are firefights, there, there's action that kind of almost comes out of nowhere. Uh, the film also has a chore cut out for itself because it's balancing... Uh, the characters of Hampton and O'Neill. So we're kind of going back and forth. And when Hampton goes to prison, uh, we we get a couple of scenes with him there, but the movie kind of loses a little bit of his energy. And so that's kind of tough on everything where you're just kind of going here, going there, going back. At the same time, I think it it helps to create it helps to create an energy uh, with this story. It does feel propulsive. Uh, we're all kind of moving towards something, and we know what that something is. And the, the you know that that big scene where the betrayal occurs is uh, it's it, it's a it's a well-made scene. It's harrowing. Uh, I I do want to point out the way that the cinematography reinforces uh, these characters and their inner kind of fear. Uh, There's one scene where uh, uh, Stanfield's character is being interrogated by members of the Black Panther Party and he's inside of a car and he's worried that they found him out. And outside, it's just kind of drizzling a little bit, and the windows are all kind of filled with with uh, with raindrops, and it it does feel like the world is kind of closing in. It feels like there's this there's this prison around him. There's a great shot at the beginning of the movie where we're just kind of following Stanfield's character as he impersonates an FBI agent. And those cinematic moments are just so uh, magnetic. They're so powerful. We see the film kind of moving at all cylinders at those points. And so it just, 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 just some incredible cinema happening on the screen during a number of scenes in this film.
0: Yeah, the cinematographer Sean Bobbitt is also somebody who has worked with Steve McQueen quite a bit mm-hmm. on, you know, Twelve Years a Slave, Shame, Hunger. And I think his work in this film is you know, maybe not as awe inspiring as the sorts of thing that he sorts of things that he's managed with McQueen at the helm, but it's still uh, he still does turn in some really great work. I like the uh, the way that he and Shaka King use the camera during the the shootout at the Black Panther headquarters, where we kind of we follow uh, O'Neill as he's trying to both play the part of the Black Panther who's wanting to resist the police presence outside in the street, but also is trying to f- to find a way to. Uh, make sure that the police eventually succeed. And the way that the camera follows him is kind of this woozy swooping, uh, tracking shot where we follow along behind him going up and down stairs. And I, it, there's an expressiveness in that camera work that really brings us again, into the mindset of a trader who's kind of being pulled in so many different directions that he, even he isn't quite sure what he wants anymore. And I think that that's, Really great. I like that you brought up the the scene uh, where O'Neill is uh, forced at gunpoint to hotwire a car, just to sort of like prove that he isn't, you know, that that he is who he says he is. And uh, you're right that that scene is very claustrophobic with the the rain spattered car windows. But that car interior really gets a workout in this in this film. I think King finds a really great visual metaphor for how o'neill is kind of he's a he he's behind the wheel of this car for a lot of the film but he's it, king suggests with all of these different scenes taking place in the interior of that car that he's kind of just along for the ride he's inside this machine that is taking him places and he's kind of in control of it but there's also a sense in which it encloses him and it, it takes him sometimes to places where he doesn't want to go. And the way that King uses different camera angles inside that, that car interior, I think, is richly expressive of that theme of the film.
1: Yeah, and I think there's there are a number of great other performances that we could uh, mention. One in particular is Dominique Fishback. She plays Deborah Johnson, who uh begins a relationship with Fred Hampton and i think out of all the characters she's one that i don't know we just really we just get into her world and part of that is because of the performance part of that is the is the writing she is she becomes pregnant and just the idea of her bringing a child into the world uh with her Uh, with the father being being the person that he is and being the position that he is and their world and the situation and just to kind of see that and to see her worrying about Hampton and worrying about her child, it's just a great performance. And I think, For the screen time, it's a well-written role, and there are a number of other performances. I I think uh, even just small, you know, small little parts here. These, these, this cast really kind of blew it away.
0: That scene late in the film where uh, uh, Fishback's Deborah, she, she is having a conversation. With Hampton, and she points out that you know it's all very well and good for him to say you know I'm I'm giving my body to the people, I'm giving Mm -hmm. my body to the revolution, but for her that's not really an option. She she has given her body too, but there's another body growing inside of her body, and she says that's something that Hampton can't really understand as as a man. It he has freedom to sacrifice himself that isn't open to her. In the same mm-hmm. ways, and it's a good moment because it kind of it it of course humanizes both of them, but it also allows a little bit of critique of the the myth of the, of the revolutionary. How it can be such a grand adventure for him, but for the loved ones around him, um, it can it's it's a lot more complex. And the sacrifice is still heroic, but it also there is collateral damage that can't be avoided. And Hampton himself isn't the one who is going to have to live years and decades with that pain mm. after the sacrifice takes place. And I'm glad that a scene like that uh, makes it into into this film so that it doesn't feel like a hagiography. It feels much more grounded and much more interested in the specifics of what revolution costs what his revolutionary politics cost not just him but also his community and the people around yeah
1: i mean an incredible scene and it's not just the martyr but it's the martyr's family and those who have to live with that and that pain is very real and we get to see that in this film something that maybe we can both agree on i don't know we haven't talked about it yet Martin Sheen, he plays J. Edgar Hoover. His makeup is really bad in this film, uh, but I love the way he flips his persona, and instead of being this lovable American (laughs) president, he plays J. Edgar Hoover here, and uh, his scenes are are pretty good too.
0: Yeah, there's definitely some very intentional casting going on there to subvert the... uh, the the image of of the the kindly white politician curdled into the manipulative uh uh frankly uh, at least in this film the, the the evil ways that he wants to reify and and perpetuate the the power structures that are already in place i think it's uh He's a very compelling screen presence. the the, make, the makeup maybe isn't the best but you know it didn't bother me all that much, uh, especially given uh, you know the history of J Edgar Hoover on screen is littered with bad makeup. <laughs> <laughs> so I you know like the less said maybe about the Lin- Leonardo DiCaprio uh, Hoover biopic, the the better. So, <laughs> it was hard for me to be too hard on this film. For okay, me. so I
1: haven't seen I haven't seen that film, but I, I take it's not going to show up on your recommendation uh, list today. Probably not. The the no, it, it Sadly, it, is, it has been left out in the cold. <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Judas and the Black Messiah. It's currently streaming, I believe, for the next month or so on HBO Max. You can check out the film there. We also want to hear your thoughts. If you've seen the movie, make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeing seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We do also appreciate everybody who's taken uh, just... The time, the energy, the finances to support us on Patreon. If you hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and support us, it really helps us out. We got a lot of donation levels, and one of our favorites is the what can you buy for $5 level. Uh, Kevin, I I wanted to ask you, what could someone buy for five bucks? Five
0: bucks would get you, uh, you know, you're familiar of course with those Groucho glasses, right? Like the you put on the glasses and it's got the old plastic nose and the mustache yeah. and everything. The
1: wearing um, one but, right now, yeah. F-
0: oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, uh I I see that now that you have done that. <laughs> uh uh here's where we're wrapping up the episode. So, uh thank you for that image. Uh <laughs> but for $5, you could get uh the J. Edgar Hoover equivalent oh. of Groucho glasses. So if you just want to kind of look like a half- melted candle who uh, hates non-white people, then you know that's uh, that's something that you could get for five dollars if you know if that's your your thing
1: now that that that's good, Kevin. Listeners, if you already have something similar, uh, go on over to our Patreon page. We, like I said, really appreciate everyone who supports us. And we're excited too. Kevin, we got a new supporter this week and want to give him a shout out on the show. Yeah, Wade, we're really excited
0: to welcome Daniel Orris as a patron. He signed up at the $3 level, which, you know, sadly, there are no J. Edgar Hoover glasses in in his future at that level, but there are some perks that he's going to be getting as a result of that, one of which is the shout out here. So thanks so much, Daniel, for Uh, throwing some of your hard-earned dollars our way. It helps keep the show going, and it's very, very much appreciated.
1: Yes, listeners. We have reached the end of the episode, and it's at this point that we recommend something to our listeners from the world of television and or film. Kevin, what would you like to recommend today?
0: Well, I was thinking about uh, other films about corrupt police forces, uh, given that those are uh, pl- figure pretty prominently into the film that we reviewed on this week's episode, and that led me to the 1997 film *L.A. Confidential*, directed by hmm. Curtis Hanson. This uh, is a film that, again, sort of like *Judas in the Black Messiah*, just has a knockout cast: Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, David Strathairn, uh, Kevin Spacey—back in in the heyday of the '90s. Uh, they're all there, and all of the performances are just absolutely great. And this is, uh, again, this is also a film that uh, was uh, set in 1950s Hollywood, uh, and tells the story of uh, corrupt policing in that uh, in that setting, but also the interesting ways in which uh, celebrity gossip, and tawdry tabloids kind of were woven in with the 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 fabric of society itself it wasn't just a a sideshow it kind of was the main event mm-hmm. in a lot of ways there's a, a character played by Dan devito who's just uh this muckraker uh who kind of almost acts as the uh the circus the the carnival barker for the events that unfold on screen in front of us it's a great little uh, noir inflected mystery it's got gr- tons of great performances and it's just a, a real blast to watch so yeah 1997's L.A. Confidential is definitely worth everyone's time.
1: Yeah it's a really good film and uh, I haven't seen it for a while I need to check it out uh, here soon but it's it's it lives up to the hype. I, I, I used to hear all about that movie and finally watched it and I was like oh yeah that's, that's really good Kevin, the film I'm going to recommend today is actually a new movie. It was recently released. It's available to rent on VOD. And that's the 2020 movie Greenland. It's by Rick Roman Waugh. He tells the story of a young family that is seeking to survive uh, during this uh, cataclysmic natural disaster. It stars Gerard Butler. And this is one of those... I would say it's it's not a big budget. It's not low budget. Maybe like a mid budget natural disaster movie that could be terrible in all the bad ways, but it's actually a pretty enjoyable flick. It's very entertaining, very intense. There were moments when <laughs> I was just kind of squeezing the blanket beside me because of the danger these characters found themselves in. Uh, a lot of action and. Uh, I like the family aspect of the movie as they attempt to survive this cataclysmic event uh, together. So, I'm I, I tell people this film is much better than it should be because it should be like this direct-to-red-box movie that you know nobody watches, uh, <laughs> but it's actually pretty good. So, yeah, Greenland. I I I gotta say
0: Gerard Butler disaster movies. Are never going to be high on my <laughs> priority list. So I'm I'm very intrigued by the fact that it is your recommendation for this week hmm. because, like you say, this is the sort of movie that you would sort of expect to have a you know really cheap photoshopped movie poster hmm. and you might find it at a red box, but you might it might not even make it that high on the list. It's it's interesting that uh, that. Uh, it is, as you say, better better than it had any right to be. So
1: mm. I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, Priscilla loves uh, natural disaster movies, even the the ones that aren't good. And so we're like, okay, we'll watch it, but it's uh, surprising. Like Dante's, <laughs> even the ones that
0: aren't. Yeah, you, know, you know,
1: like Dante's Peak in uh, 2012. Uh, you know those types of movies. Um, uh-huh. And so, uh, but yeah, this one turned out. This turned out pretty good. Uh, so listeners, go ahead and check that out. Thank you for checking out this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Claussen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing